Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Global Shuffle Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Bullebrecht, and I'm very, very excited about the upcoming municipal elections uh, happening in Waterloo Region October 22nd, and as such, I wanted to host a podcast around that. To me, the municipal elections are some of the most important elections out there just because they impact us on such a daily basis. Here in the region, it's a bit of a different structure. I'm new to it, having only moved here two and a half years ago. And so here we actually have a region uh, to vote for, uh, and the region is responsible for things such as transit, police, emergency services, and other uh, items like that. And it's made up of a regional chair, which is elected here, regional councillors in the case, case of Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge, and then the mayors of the respected cities. So we have to vote for those groups, so regional chair, regional councillors where appropriate, and our mayors, and then also city councillors uh, for our specific cities. And then there's also school trustees uh, for the school boards as well. So lots of decisions to make. I can say personally, I spent about an hour and a half last weekend actually going through the candidates' websites uh, and checking those out. And I think it's a very good exercise to do to be make an informed decision. And one of the candidates I really was excited about is Karen Redmond. So Karen's had an illustrious career in the political and public service space. Uh, she was involved uh, as a member of parliament for Kitchener Centre from 1997 to 2008 where she held a variety of roles. And over the last four years, she's been CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region and also a regional councillor here. So lots of great experience. And uh, with Ken Sealing retired after 30 years at the helm of regional chair, she's put her name forward for that position. And so we recorded this from her kitchen. Uh, after a few attempts, her dog was there barking. So we, we had a few attempts at the beginning and finally got it recorded. Wonderful, wonderful interview. She's a great storyteller and it was a pleasure to spend some time with her. And I really hope you enjoy this interview. We start things off by understanding who is Karen Redmond? Well, I started out life as a small child. <laughs> um, grew up um, in the country. It was actually R01 Preston at the time and went to a small country school with a bunch of farm kids and some kids whose dads did executive stuff at Savage Shoe and J.M. Schneider. So it was a bit of an eclectic growing up but a wonderful experience and I, I just loved playing the farmers fields and along the Grand River and it really struck me that we have this gift of geography not only across Canada but particularly in Waterloo region and so when cyclists come to me and, and they talk about the walkability of the city and they talk about cycling I internalize that and I understand it because that was my growing up it was you know riding along country roads and making sure you didn't fall when fresh tar was on there um, from there I went to Eastwood Collegiate and that's where I met my husband and then I went off to U of T and studied um, and ended up graduating in English I actually transferred from U of T to the University of Waterloo and um, was a freelance writer while we had our four kids. And that was really fun and gave me a, a window on, um, I used to do some writing for the Chamber of Commerce. So I got to sort of see that aspect of, of business and the movers and shakers uh, in the community. And, you know, it's interesting when you talk to the Chambers of Commerce right now, whether it's um, Ian McLean from the uh, KW and Greater uh, Kitchener Chamber of Commerce or Greg DeRocher from the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce, attracting talent continues to be a real issue. And it's interesting when you talk about high tech, because it's not just the bright lights like you that come and do the high tech, but it's the support people too. And it's one of the reasons why the LRT is so important, because everything works together. And it's really important that we 
realize that we're a, a prosperous, uh, vibrant community. And a lot of that is the result of really bright young people that have come to the both of the universities, either Delorier or Waterloo or to Conestoga College. And they love our quality of life. And we're lucky enough that they stay and they start businesses and they do amazing things. Well, and they stay just like you, I guess, because, I mean, this has been where you've, you've spent most of your, your life, I suppose, right? Other than going to U of T for yeah. two years and the 11 and a half years that I commuted to Ottawa when as an MP, this has um, always yeah. been where I hung my hat. So I'm wondering, was there a specific moment or experience that really inspired you to go into public life or to public service, let's say? There really was. My my background was when my kids were little, I, we had four kids in not quite five years. And so I was an at-home mom for a really long time. And, and what nourished my spirit and engaged me intellectually was volunteering. So I, I was like a hardcore volunteer. And I also started advocating for our children as they entered the school system. And the two girls went all the way through in French immersion. We have a son that um, is dyslexic and has a pretty profound learning disability. So I started advocating for him. And when I was doing, and then we have a fourth son that's just your garden variety kid that went through school and all was well. He's an engineer now. And um, it struck me that the advocate advocacy that I was doing for my children, I could do for other parents because I knew that my kids were getting what they needed out of the system, but I would see other parents and they weren't as successful. And I thought if I ran as a school trustee, I could advocate for other people's kids. And I still believe that public education, quality education will always be a hill to die on in public policy because it's the great equalizer. That's interesting. Yeah, so it was a very specific moment of you standing up for an issue that you cared about that then got you involved. So, I mean, this campaign now, you've done a few of these now. So I'm curious, like, what do you remember about your first campaign? What I remember about my first campaign was a good friend of mine. I, I put a brochure together and she knew Elizabeth Whitmer, who at that time was chair of the uh, public board. And she said, do you want me to go talk to Liz and see if she'll look over your pamphlet? And I went, wow, okay. And I actually had written letters to Elizabeth as chair of the board when they were painting my children's school because our one son with the learning disability reacted very adversely to the the paint smell and so that had sort of been the only interaction I had with Liz Whitmer so I took my brochure and I went in to see her and she could not have been more helpful and we've actually we have a great friendship we have we share values um Despite, you know, it's funny, people often think that if you're of a specific party stripe that you aren't friends and there's not crossovers with other uh, political parties and people in those parties. And the reality is there's more that unites us than divides us. So my first election, I got this pamphlet. My minister of the day gave me $100, which seemed like a fortune. And I had these pamphlets made and I would send my kids all off to school because our youngest son was just in grade one at the time. And I would walk as far in one direction as I could make it back in order to give them lunch at noon because they came home for lunch. And then I would do the same in the afternoon. And I did that probably for a couple of months. And my friends would come every Friday night and we would give them sections of the city and they would go out and they would deliver pamphlets on to people's doors and then we would come back and have beer and chicken wings and it was really fun and there were some hysterical stories that don't bear repeating but um, it was a bit of an adventure that all of my friends and family have continued on with me. Um, one young politician, a female, asked me the other day how many um, elections this was. I think this is 10 for me. Wow. 
so how does when you look at i mean this campaign or even a recent campaign how do you think that they have changed either based on how the world has changed around us or also how maybe you approach them differently now having done a few of them already i would tell you that i think the context of campaigning has been the most profound change and it's social media it's uh emailing um an individual constituent can send me an email with three questions or ten questions and I'll sit down and answer them. That wasn't there when I started. I mean, people could phone you. And um, it's a much more sophisticated, and I think people are a lot more demanding of people putting their name forward um, for public office. And also when you're in public office, there, there's a more immediate accountability because of social media and accessibility. And I think that's true. I mean, I talk to lawyers and they'll say that if they don't get back to a client within three or four hours, they'll go down the list and call another lawyer. So I think the sort of dogged um, fidelity or um, yeah, of, of a person or a um, law firm or even an individual has changed now. People have become consumers of service and we're running to be providers of public service and I think those expectations aren't unreasonable they're just very different than they were when I started it's so funny you mentioned the lawyer one as, as we've talked about I'm closing a house next week our first house and I literally just did exactly what you said I had a name of three lawyers and I called one left a voicemail called another left a voicemail called another one got back to me I, I like we ended up just going with them and then an hour later I got called back from one of them like hey sorry I already made a decision and it was like you know, like I, I had a limited amount of time, like, all right, I'm going to get this done. And yeah, I, I think we all do the response time we expect has changed and it just changes that tenacity that's required sometimes. One thing I want to talk about that I'm very interested in as someone that is a political nerd is just, I mean, obviously you were in party politics for a while and, and we've spoken a bit about this offline, just the transition to, again, not representing a party. And I'm curious, how did you deal with it when you were in federal politics? If there was perhaps a party policy you disagreed with it, and you would have to defend it, you know, publicly to other people. How did you deal with that? Well, I've often said at Doors, especially in this election, that I think it's the skill set that I bring that I um, developed through my um, previous roles, and the way you make a difference in party politics is you talk to your caucus colleagues. And what I have come to realize that what persuades me is a logical argument. And I know for some people, it's when people get very emotional. And as party whip, I meted out discipline to my colleagues. Um, I heard their stories. I knew a lot of backstories that I would never tell anybody. I would just say, if member X says that they have to be in Toronto on Friday, they have my permission because they needed permission to be out of the house if they were supposed to be there on house duty. It, they were three men, and at the point in time that I was whipped, at that point in time anyway, they had kids that were in the hospital um, with eating disorders. And they were where they needed to be as parents. And I felt that it was a privilege that I was be, would be able to say to them, you need to go and be there with your wife and your kids. It happened, these were three male um, MPs. So I think that skill level and that skill set, I learned it when I was on a, the school board, was a logical argument to say, here are the reasons why I think this is how we should go, or here are the compelling reasons why I think this decision, this piece of legislation is really difficult, and the bugbear of legislation will always be unintended consequences. So 
as much as when you're in partisan politics in the government um, decides in a position or an approach or a piece of legislation there's always time in my personal experience to talk to the cabinet minister talk to your leader talk to the prime minister and say here are some compelling arguments um, when I was um, parliamentary secretary to the minister of environment we were bringing through a piece of legislation that controlled species at risk it protected them it protected their habitat this piece of legislation had laid around for about 10 years. This was the fourth attempt. And Kretchen was prime minister at the time, and he basically said to me and the whip staff, and I was parliamentary secretary, I wasn't whip at the time, that this would not come to the House floor unless we could pass it. So there were um, seven liberals at the time on the committee, and then um, the same, I think, seven members of the opposition. And I had liberal members and a liberal chair that would regularly vote against the government. As a parliamentary secretary, it's your role to get legislation through committees. So I started working with two reform members because there were reform, there were progressive or conservatives, and there was an NDP. So the NDP member and the two reform people, and they were both former farmers, and they got that we needed to talk to fishers and ranchers in order to bring in a piece of legislation that had more carrots than sticks. So the expression used to be shoot, shovel, and shut up. If you found a endangered species, you just didn't tell anybody. And we wanted to co-op them and First Nations into being part of the stewards of the land. And I went to the prime minister and I said to him, I can get this passed. And I went to the minister and I said, here are the things that the reform guys want. Here's the change that the NDP guy wants. All that I thought were defensible from a policy point of view. But I went to Kretchen and I said, you have to tell the chair that he has to vote with government. And he laughed and he said, oh, he always votes with me in the final analysis. So I went back and I asked my EA at the time to get this one liberal member's voting record. And I went back to Kretchen and I said, Here's his voting record, and he doesn't always vote with the government. And Kretchen looked at me, and he laughed, and he said, Kirin, I will talk to him. And he did, and we got the legislation through. And um, it, it's already come up for its 10-year review, so it was a long time ago now. But um, that's where I cut my chops on figuring out how you find common ground and how you can move things forward. I love that story. Wow. Absolutely. It's a really long story. That was Sorry. a great story. And, and if you follows from that you made a comment about unintended consequences can you elaborate what you mean by that there we've all done it in life where you make a decision you think this is a solid way to go and um all of a sudden you realize i mean i can give you an example one of them was when we were looking at um, phase two in the route um, into cambridge and one of the things that we talked about was how people feel when their land's expropriated and We've talked about the value to the landowner and how they would get fair market value. And there's a whole process that you could go through to um, make sure they were compensated. Well, it turned out that some of the people that were delegations didn't own the land. They were renters they, and maybe long-term renters, but paying the landlord did not benefit them. And what further disenfranchised them was there wasn't a lot of affordable housing in their section of Cambridge. So that would be, to me, a good example of unintended consequence. We thought that if you expropriate the land in its fair value, that that should satisfy the delegations when they only rent it, so that doesn't solve their problem. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
And back to the, yeah, and I, I think that's one thing we don't think about often just when it comes to policy, just like how do you, you're trying to achieve one thing, but I didn't, you know, unintentionally you create another issue at the same time. But back to the earlier question, like, so if you, let's say you, you, you explained that process with Kretchen that you went through, but let's say there was a policy that your colleagues came up with that you did not want to support, but you had to, and then someone of your constituents asked you about it, like, how would you handle that? Because I mean, I'm sure there's a desire to be, you know, genuine, but also you have to, you know, there's party discipline in that. How do you, how did you balance that? Um, there, there wasn't anything ever that I felt that I was um, compromising my personal values. And okay. it's one of the reasons why um, when it came to same-sex marriage, Kretchen always said that it was a free vote. So he, he wouldn't whip people into doing something that wasn't consistent with their personal values. But I appreciate that five and a half years of my tenure as a, a parliamentarian was being the whip, was being the person. So when it, it was at all possible, if people felt really compromised, you would send them on a trip, you'd allow them to be out of the house, um, you'd send them to represent the government for something mm -hmm. so that they weren't put in a position where they would have to do something that was against their uh, That's conscience. Okay, I never knew that. Huh. And how do you find it now? I mean, you've been a regional councillor the last four years and now running for regional chair. Not having that party structure, I don't want to say on top of you or as part of you, or what are the, some of the big differences you notice or... I mean, it could be good or bad or just different from that time that you spent in the federal level. I think it's very freeing because whatever your platform is, is your personal beliefs. Um, but it, at, on the other side of that, um, you have to find people. And I did um, two very productive focus groups where I asked people to come and give me their opinion. And when I was a member of parliament, I quarterly would meet with a group that were not liberals. They, and they weren't necessarily caring people. So they would come and they would tell me the hard facts. And they would say, um, economically, this piece makes no sense. Or do you realize that this social program isn't hitting the target? And it was really valuable to me to hear those unvarnished reactions to what was working and what wasn't. Because we all live in communities. We live on a street. We live in... A circle of influence and there are things that concern each of us for personal reasons I don't necessarily well we don't none of us share exactly the same path so it was really important to me to get that perspective um, one of the very first votes that I did as a free vote was uh, support uh, the medicinal use of marijuana and I remember standing up and voting for that and it was a private members bill and they were they were never whipped under Kretchen and I remember my friend Patty Torsney, who represented Burlington, flipping her head around and going, why are you voting for that? She was heckling me, my, my liberal colleague. <laughs> and I said, because I had worked for a very long time with people that were living with disabilities. And one woman in particular, Catherine, um, took medication and she was very, very thin. And she said the one thing that allowed her to eat was access to marijuana. And I knew that we needed to listen to that anecdotal history. I've never used marijuana. I've never smoked marijuana, just to be on the record. <laughs> but um, it made a huge difference to her. So there were other people like that. Um, what we, the, the government didn't do well was supply um, uh, access to a stable, consistent form of marijuana that they could use. And a lot of people who were in very bad health, like they could grow, I think it was three plants, but 
they, they didn't have, they weren't robustly healthy enough to even be gardeners of three marijuana plants. Interesting. When do you think, I mean, you've obviously been in various roles for a number of years, and even the last four years, kind of juggling two roles as CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo, but then also as regional counselor. Like, what are some of the tactics or habits or strategies you use in order to be effective? Because I think there's never a shortage of work or emails or constituents, but I, I'm always interested in what are the tactics or habits that people leverage in order to be, you know, as successful as they can in these roles. Well, I... I'm a great believer in executive summaries. I think that politics so often is knowing the right questions to ask. So reading briefs, reading um, reports, we have a very, very professional um, staff at, the, at Waterloo Region, and I think they all strive to do excellent jobs. But you can get buried in information. So I try to read through it um, in enough time that I can then go back to staff and say, I have this question, I, this isn't clear. And sometimes I would get the answer and I would still raise it uh, in open session because I wanted to underscore an issue. The other thing I have always found really productive is when delegations come, and you, you're not supposed to debate with delegations because you don't want anyone to be intimidated and not want to come to the region because you're mean to them. But we would have a delegation, and I think of uh, safe consumption sites as something um, and one delegation came and they thought they should be in hospitals. And then the uh, doctor from Sanguine, who they operate a, a mobile unit that's been operating for quite a while in Kitchener, and I asked him to comment on why he thought that was, was or was not a good idea. And to me, that was very illuminating because I'm not an expert, but I have access to experts, so let's ask them. It wasn't a debate, but it was sort of cross-checking um, somebody that thought they had a good idea with somebody else that had research and lived experience to say why that probably it you know good short fast solutions are often not the best ones <laughs> so heading into this election i mean obviously ken seedling's been in place for 30 years uh, he's been doing that for a long time and now you know someone else is going to take over that role. So in your case, what do you, I mean, you've had the experience being on regional council for years, so you know what's going on. What is it, what are the things you want to bring over the next four years if you're, if you're successful in the election? A couple of things, you know, it's interesting. It's never been, um, my style to give people a grocery list of what I'm going to do for them. And I think that this election is absolutely about leadership and I would reiterate, it's the skill set I bring of, I think, um, building bridges and finding common cause. But that isn't just with the provincial and the federal government. It's around the horseshoe as well. The regional chair is directly elected, so they have a mandate that's really pretty unique. And um, it's unfortunate that um, there are four regional councils that, I mean, they will um, pick from the regional councillors around the table. And we did that initially as well. But when you're directly elected, you do have a mandate that's much larger than anybody else at the table. Having said that, you can't bully people. You can't come up with a great idea and run forward with it unless you get the majority of council to agree to it. So I think, again, you're finding common ground. You're explaining why this is a good thing for municipalities, um, for townships. And I'm really keen to continue to um, have a prosperous region, but prosperity means different things to so many people, right? It could be 
a stable, affordable home for a single mom where her kids can come home every day and do their homework at the kitchen table and they'll have those lifetime memories of not having to always be moving to a new school because they're looking for more affordable uh, accommodation. It can be one of you bright light uh, high-tech startups who is saying, geez Louise, I I need a good accountant, I need um, somebody who will do my marketing for me, how am I going to attract those people? Um, those kind of people probably want um, seamless transportation. They want uh, light rail transit that um, goes to both ends of the region and connects us to high-speed rail and all-way, two-way go. So we do have to talk to the other levels of government. When we look at finishing phase two of the LRT, which I totally support and I think we absolutely have to do, We can talk to the province and the federal government with a new understanding that there have been other funding models since we embarked on stage one. When they embarked on stage one, it was a third the local tax base, a third from the provincial government, a third from the federal government. But there have been other areas that have got much richer funding from other levels of government. So I think we need to go after that. I think Waterloo Waterloo Region has demonstrated that, that we're worthy of that kind of investment. The other thing I'm very keen to keep is managed growth because successive regional councils have, um, and you've probably heard reference to the country line, but what we've tried to do is keep greenfield sprawl from covering up all the best farmland. Food production and manufacturing is one of the five top drivers of our economy in Waterloo Region. So it isn't just about having the farmer's market and being able to drive past green fields because as much as we all love to do it there's a real economic reason why we need to protect Hmm. that so the LRT answers that too because that we will build up rather than out and it's as much a planning tool as a transportation tool and I know I knock on doors I was knocking on a gentleman in Waterloo's door just this week and he was saying to me I'm never going to ride the ion and you know I think it's terrible and then his next neighbor worked his whole career at Bud went from two cars to one car to selling his cars and rides his bike and cannot wait for the um, ION to start. So there's there's a variety of attitudes as to how much we'll use the um, LRT, but the reality is the investment we've seen in Kitchener-Waterloo, the $3 billion investment, increases the tax base and the regional portion of that tax base goes, it benefits the entire region. You don't allocate it to the city that it's generated in. And we have every reason to think there'll be that kind of um, investment in Cambridge too. So it, it's an additional opportunity for us to continue to grow our region in a direction, in a way that is defensible. So there's been a lot of talk about the A word amalgamation just in the province. Uh, do you have any thoughts or comments on that? I do. And, you know, it it's not top of mind when I knock on people's doors at all, but I think the region has come of age that we can have a mature conversation about this. The last thing in the world that should drive this process is the number of politicians, because that's not why we would be doing it. You just need to look at Thunder Bay, Halifax, um, Hamilton to realize that you don't save money. What should drive any change in government, um, whether it's two tier, one tier, or uh, a different um, configuration of what we have now is does it make doing business better it can we take better um, advantage of opportunities that come our way 
Does it um, increase investment in our community? Is it investing in the things that citizens say they need? Does it make this a more pleasant, um, inclusive place to live? Those are the things that should be driving change, not numbers of politicians. I, and the other thing I feel very strongly about is um, it's not up to politicians to reform this um, form of government. What we need to do is to talk to people who live in neighborhoods and communities and across this region in every corner and find out from them what better fits their view and their needs. What do you see as the biggest risk for the region over the next four years? Because, I mean, everything, everyone's generally, I think, in this region seems, I'm, I'm generalizing, but I'm going to say optimistic. And I don't think we people feel that everywhere in the province, but generally here, it's a lot of positivity around what's happening. What do you see as the risk or some of the challenges ahead? Well, I think there are risks, and I think you're right. One of the things that Waterloo Region continually does is roll up its sleeves and figure out a local solution. And we're a very pragmatic community. Um, we're much more diverse and we're much larger than we were, but we've still hung on to that that value, that sort of can-do attitude. You know, I look at the Community Safety Council and it was used as a template across Canada and they've done international um, conferences too because everybody who needed to talk about how do we have a safer community and how do we deal with crime was at the table. So we had social agencies, school boards, um, healthcare providers, all levels of government, um, the police, uh, first responders, and it's that kind of um, coming together that will continue to hold us in good stead. The opioid crisis is huge. We already have a, um, a drug um, response team. Um, it's nimble. It's, it has, again, all of those players that you need at the table. But there's some big city issues that are coming towards us. We saw um, a shooting about five blocks from where we're sitting right now, just a few weeks ago. We know those issues are coming. Um, gun control obviously is not a local issue. It's something that has to be dealt with at the uh, a discussion that has to ha be um, had at the federal and provincial level. But there is no doubt that um, we need to continue to um, collaborate with everybody here to find out what the best solution is. There's some services, and I think social housing is, is one, and um, discretionary benefits, which are things that um, are outside of just the base benefits that somebody would get on social services. And a previous government cut those back, and the region stepped in and filled that void. Um, those kinds of conversations can still be had, but social housing is a huge need. We need it right across the region, and it's something that the federal government has stepped up and has funding for. So there are always solutions to challenges. We just need to make sure that we're aware of, of what the possibilities are. So I want to close just with some quick hitting questions, and these won't be like the ones you had at the Chamber of Commerce in Cambridge. Yay, okay. Um, just a few ones I wanted to throw, some ones that I like. So if you had to do a TED Talk, what would it be on? If I was going to do a TED Talk, it would be on valuing ambition in women and girls. Okay, why? Because I think we value ambition in men, and especially in political realms, we don't value ambition in women. And we should. Okay, question two. Uh, what is the funniest campaign story that you have? Oh my gosh, there! Oh, there are so many. 
the funniest campaign what is story. the funniest one? Well, do you want me to tell you how many naked people have come to the door? <laughs> one man, I could take you to his house in Kitchener, or the house, I don't know if he still lives there, and he thought he was being discreet, so he only opened the door partway and he leaned around. It was a Saturday afternoon. But what he wasn't taking into account were all the mirrored doors that um, were in the hallway for the coat closet. So it was a very fast conversation. You're like, ah, uh, here's a cut flip. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to go out uh, in Waterloo Region for a Friday night, where do you go? Friday? It's like your favorite place. Oh, gee. I, we really like walking down to the little restaurant that's um, in Ottawa Street Plaza or walking downtown. Um, I like that hometown feel that you can walk somewhere and we're close enough living by the auditorium that you can. We like trying new restaurants. Yeah. My husband would always say Ben Than. He loves Thai food. So he's always pulling for that. Okay. What is your favorite app or app that you use most frequently? My favorite app. What's up? What's up? Yeah. Um, we used that when we were in Ireland and still stay in contact with uh, one woman who lives in Seattle and a couple that live in Vancouver. So maybe that. Yeah. All right. Uh, what is the worst advice you ever got as a politician? Oh, my gosh. The worst advice. I thought that we, we, there was a whole book that came out when I first ran um, uh, federally, and it told you what to wear and to wear lipstick and how your hair should be. And I've never been able to get my hands on it again. I think somebody defaced it in my um, campaign office. So I would think that that was, um, it was trying to get you to, and there were other parties that did very similar things at the time. I think people were trying to get um, little clones of what they thought a female politician should look at and how we could maybe fit in with the guys a little better. Um, so that that was it wasn't from a person, but it was really. I think it was well intended, but badly, badly executed. Yeah, that's one of those things that does not age well. No, no, and I actually have looked for it because I've talked to other journalists. Like I'd love a copy, and I can't find it. I think one of my female volunteers shredded it. Probably. Do you have any political idols or role models? I had the honor of meeting Nelson Mandela, and I would tell you that I don't think there's many people that um, change the playing field, that change the conversation, that touch people's hearts the way he did. And additionally to that, we were in South Africa and we met members of his cabinet had, who had been in de Klerk's government. Mm -hmm. They had been the people that had incarcerated him for those 24 years and he asked them to come into his cabinet and they had to recalibrate the world as they knew it because nobody expected they thought he'd come out and be very vindictive and he said nope we have to heal we have to move on so I think Nelson Mandela will always sort of be a shining star that's one that I've really gotten to identify with this year I've gone to South Africa a few times and yeah it's uh, I echo everything you said all right, so on that note, I think we're going to wrap up. But thank you very much for taking the time. I loved hearing some of the stories, some I didn't even expect. So really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. And I'm going to think on the worst advice because most people ask you what the best advice is. So I'll, I'll come up with a better answer next time. All right.